Good afternoon. My name is Michael and I serve as one of the elders at Covenant Hope Church. If you have your Bible, please turn to James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. I fell in love with God as a little kid. My parents told me that God loved me and they said that Jesus died for my sins and I believed them. And for a couple decades now, I've been learning more and more about God every single day. God is the most perfect being. He's one whom none greater can be imagined in thought or in reality. God is incomprehensible. A, a few of us from the church are getting together each week on Zoom and we're studying the doctrine of God together. After nine weeks, we'll have just tasted a little drop of who he is. If you're a Christian, you'll spend all of eternity knowing God and you'll still not exhaust his riches. I love what one brother in the class said. He said, God's incomprehensibility is like an immense iceberg. You'll never find the bottom of it. And God is also holy. If you spent time with me, maybe if we went on a road trip, you might see my strengths and you'd also see my sin. But there will never be a moment where you'll find a fault or a failure in God. None exist. He is completely devoted to himself in all his perfection. And God is from himself. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. The very first words of the Bible declare this glorious truth. In the beginning, God. He's eternally existed from himself. I, on the other hand, am a dependent being. When I wake up, I go make a cup of coffee and then I have breakfast because I need food. And I think I need caffeine too. But God needs none of this. He only needs himself. He's the God who doesn't need you. But he loves you. God is love. His love is seen perfectly in his triune nature as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit perfectly love one another. His love is also seen in the sending of the only Son into the world. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. My love, however, is full of mixed motivations. I'm often even fueled by the love of myself. God's love is everywhere, too, because God is omnipresent. Could you hide in secret places so that He could not see you? He fills the heaven and the earth but I am bound by space and time. I'm reminded of this each morning as I head out for work and my daughter waves goodbye to me. I'm preaching to you through a camera because I cannot be physically present with you. How different then is God from us? The doctrine of God is precious and practical for believers. Do you have any sorrows? Do you face trials? 
then plunge yourself into the doctrine of God and swim in his immensity. Do you have any fears? Weigh them up against God and watch them flee. Do you battle pride? You'll vanish like a mist as you contemplate the God who doesn't need you and answers to no one, including you. What you think about God, A.W. Tozer said, is the most important thing about you. So what do you think about God? The main idea of this sermon is we need God's thoughts about God to endure trials and temptations. We need God's thoughts about God to endure trials and temptations. Before we read James, let's pray and let's ask God for his help. God, we come to you and we praise you. You are incomprehensible. We can never fully exhaust our knowledge of you, yet you're kind to us. You've revealed yourself both in nature and in your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. And you're omnipresent. We praise you. Though we cannot gather physically as a church, you are with us wherever we go. You never leave us, nor do you forsake us. We praise you for you are not like us. And we ask you, God, for wisdom. Would you give us wisdom as we study this text? Would you illuminate it to us by the Holy Spirit? Would you do all this for the glory of Jesus Christ alone? In his name we pray. Amen. We need God's thoughts about God to endure trials and temptations. Let's read James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. To those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. By the end of this sermon, my hope is that you will see if your thoughts about God are God's thoughts about God. And if at the end of this sermon you find that your thoughts about God are in fact God's thoughts about God, then let this sermon serve as a reminder to you of how incredibly amazing and glorious God is. But if at some point in the sermon you find out that your thoughts about God are not God's thoughts about God, then let this sermon serve as a course correction for you and commit your life 
to knowing the God of the Bible. James loved the doctrine of God because James loved God. In verse 1, he called himself a servant of God. In verse 5, he told us, ask God for wisdom, and he rooted that command in the doctrine of God. God is generous and single-minded in his giving. Today, there are three thoughts about God that I want you to behold. First is God's promised blessing in trials. God's promised blessing in trials. In verses 2 through 4 a couple weeks ago, James told us to count our trials as joy because steadfastness produces maturity and wholeness in us. Now he reminds believers of God's promised blessing in trials. And at this point, we're not surprised to find James gleaning from his older brother's sermon. In the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the Beatitudes. He begins with a blessing. Blessed are. And then he says who receives the blessing and ends with the reason for the blessing. Listen to the first few Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus repeats this formula nine times, and James follows his older brother's lead, and he gives his own beatitude. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. To be blessed doesn't mean to be always happy. To be blessed means to be a recipient of God's favor. And when God blesses you with his favor, it's not dependent upon your emotional state or life circumstances. It's dependent on the one that's given you the blessing. That's God himself. And the recipient of the blessing is the man who remains steadfast under trial. As we've seen, trials can be poverty and persecution. They can also be sickness and the death of loved ones. James isn't referring to one trial in particular, but he's referring to the very essence of trials themselves. So the man's the recipient. Then James gives the reason for the blessing. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Suffering saints need not only remember that God's producing in them maturity, they also need to know what God has promised to them. In the midst of many trials these believers face, James saturates their hearts with eschatology. You might not know what eschatology is. Let me tell you, it's the study of the end of our lives and of the world in general. That's the long definition. Here's the really short one. It's the study of the last things. And for many Christians, eschatology only produces fear and confusion, but it's not meant to. Christian reflection on the last things is, to, is meant to provide us comfort and assurance. Because for the Christian, we know that God is making all things new. 
Eschatology reminds us warmly that God truly is going to undo all the sad things in the world. Christians really do have the happiest ending. Brothers and sisters, you need eschatology in your trials. You need to view your trials in light of eternity. You need to remember that the reward awaits you in the life to come. And eschatology helps us remember that we may be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We might be perplexed, but not driven to despair. We might be persecuted, but not forsaken. We might be struck down, but we're not destroyed. For Paul, eschatology reminded him that these earthly trials are light and momentary compared to what's coming. And what awaits you if you remain steadfast and stand the test is this. It's this blessing, the crown of life. This crown is not a gold crown studded with gems, maybe the ones you think of when you see kings and queens. It's more like the victor's wreath that's given as a reward for those who finish the race. Paul awaited it as he wrote Timothy in his final hours. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Jesus promised it to persecuted Christians in Revelation 2. Be faithful unto death, Jesus said, and I will give you the crown of life. But still, this crown is not a physical crown. It's not a wreath with life in capital letters written on it. You could actually translate this verse, he will receive the crown which is life. James is talking about eternal life. You might be living you might be living in death right now. But if you're a Christian, you're on your way to eternal life. This is God's promised blessing in trials, and it's for those, James says, who love him. Do you love God? Do you love him more than health or more than wealth? Do you love God more than comfort? Jesus said you must love God more than your own family. With each trial, our love for God is tested. God's asking us, am I enough for you? Do you love me even if I take everything else away? And God's promised everlasting life for those that endure and stand the test of trials. It's for those who love him. The Chicago Bulls of the 90s will go down in history as the greatest basketball team of all time. At the beginning of Michael Jordan's last season with the Bulls, his coach had a meeting with the entire team. They all knew that it was the end of their season. They all knew that at the end, they would split apart, players would get traded, the coach would go to a new team. So the coach sat everyone down at the beginning and he told them, this is the last dance. It was the team's final chance to win a championship together. And they kept this idea in their minds the entire season. This is the last dance. We only have one shot. The end result 
is all that matters. And at the end of that season, after many trials, they lifted up the Larry O'Brien Trophy as world champions once again. Now, Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And as a local church, we're a team. We're helping one another receive a greater reward than the Larry O'Brien Trophy, greater than some trivial championship, and each of us serves a crucial role. So, every time you pray for one another, every time you open your Bible with one another, every time you watch over one another, every time you warn and rebuke and admonish one another, every time you rejoice with one another and bear one another's burdens, every time you exercise the keys of the kingdom and vote people into membership and out of membership, every time you encourage one another in the gospel, all these countless, seemingly insignificant and ordinary actions, all of this, we are serving one another and helping one another get to heaven. This is our last dance. Because yesterday is gone. And eternity is going to be here very soon. So we need to remind one another of God's promised blessing and trials. That's the first thought about God that we need to consider. God's promised blessing and trials. Here's the second thought about God. God's impeccable perfection in temptation. God's impeccable perfection in temptation. We see this in verses 13 through 15. God may bring trials that test us for our maturity, but God never tempts us to sin. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James shifts from considering trials to considering temptations. Every trial comes with temptation. They walk hand in hand together, but there's a crucial difference between the two. For trials can come from God, but temptations never do. That's what James begins this verse with, verse 13. He starts with the source of temptation. Don't say when you're tempted, God is tempting me. That's not the source. And how many of us fall into this temptation and then we turn and blame God for it? He put me in this position. He cornered me with the temptation. It was too strong. What choice did I have? Like the double-minded man, back in verse 6, the person who blames God for temptation doubts God's very character and accuses him of evil. And James gives two reasons that you should not blame God for temptation. The first is rooted in God's very character. God is impeccably perfect. Impeccability is the absence of sin. In God's perfection, no sin exists. There's no corruption. There's no impurity. There's no malice or wickedness, no evil, nothing nefarious, nothing vile, not a drop of his essence 
is foul or unpleasant. He's perfect. Impeccability is also the inability to sin. God not only doesn't sin, but he cannot sin. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary, the mother of Jesus, also shared this attribute, but Jesus had to die on the cross for Mary's sin. Because in this life, only God is impeccably perfect. And the second reason James says you shouldn't blame God for temptation actually stems from the first one. God tempts no one. He cannot be tempted, so he cannot tempt. You've never been tempted by God to sin. Not a single one of your sins can be traced back to his sovereign hand. He tempts no one. Now, there have been times where you've probably wished evil on someone. There's been times, probably, where you've wished harm on somebody. But God's motives and God's attitudes are perfect. He's never desired that you would sin. After all, remember what sin is. Sin is rebellion against Him. Why would He want you to rebel against Him? Why would He want you to dishonor His name? But if God's not the source of temptation, what is? James' answer might surprise you. He says, you are. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. About a thousand years before Christ, there was a Greek poet named Homer. He wrote the epic story called The Odyssey. He wrote of a battle even bigger than World War I. It was a 10-year battle where the city of Troy was sieged and surrounded by the Greeks. Now, the battle lasted so long, a decade, because the Greeks could not overcome the walls of Troy. They tried and tried again, but they kept failing. Until one morning, the Greek armies retreated leaving behind a giant Trojan horse as a present. After some debate, the Trojans accepted the gift and they opened their gates, pulling the Trojan horse into the city. But they didn't know that the Greek soldiers were hidden inside of it. That night, the soldiers climbed out of the horse and sacked the city. The Trojans unknowingly brought their own enemy past their greatest defense and into their city for their own destruction. Here's the real source of temptation, James says. It's a Trojan horse that you can't get rid of. It's not God. It's your own desires. Our temptation comes from within us. Our greatest enemy is already on the inside. Trials happen to you. This temptation happens within you. Now, James' readers could easily have come to the conclusion that their trials were their greatest problem. Some of them were displaced from their homes because of persecution. Some of them were living in poverty because of oppression. How easy would it have been to blame their sin on their circumstances. But it was their desires. 
James says. Not their circumstances that was the problem. Now the word desire here, it can have a neutral meaning in the New Testament. But the context in James seems to show he's talking about sinful desires. When somebody desires evil, which is what James has just mentioned in verse 13, the desire itself is evil. All desire for sin is sinful. James presents a detailed view of what happens in temptation. First, he says, your own sinful desires lure and entice you. When you're fishing, you put bait on a hook. And when the fish sees the bait, it doesn't think about that hook or the frying pan. In fact, the fish just thinks about the bait and it goes after it. And this is what our desires do when we're tempted. They have a hypnotic effect on us. They drag us away. When we're tempted, we don't think about the consequences of sin. We think about the pleasures. And at any moment, a seemingly harmless thought can turn to sin. First, the thought pops into our heads. Then we take the bait. And soon enough, we cannot live without that, whatever it is. We need it. We must have it. Many religions teach that sin is the action, not the desire. Remember, as a kid, you were told, don't eat the cookie. In fact, I told my daughter that this afternoon. Don't eat the cookie. And though many of you wanted it in your heart, you didn't eat it because for many of you, like me, you're a coward. Many religions say that's not sin. But some of you, when you were told, don't eat the cookie, you did it anyways because you were brave and you didn't care about the discipline afterwards. And many religions say that is sin. Now, most of us, we wanted the cookie in our hearts, but we didn't go and eat it and we think that makes us a good person. Then James' older brother, Jesus, comes along and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And he teaches us that if we even desire sin in our hearts, we're guilty of committing it. If you wanted the cookie in your heart, when you were told not to eat it, that's sin. So we cannot deal with sin at the behavioral level. We need to take an honest look at how deep our sin problem goes. And James tells us it's in the heart. It's in our desires. Now, what we say when we're confronted with our own sin actually reveals if we believe James or not. We often blame shift. I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't I'm sorry I said that, but you, Adam and Eve, did the same thing in the garden. They were lured and enticed. And then when they sinned and God confronted them, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. So husbands, your sin is not your wife's fault. Wives, your sin is not your husband's fault. Friends, your sin is your own fault. We need to stop blaming others for our sin. And we also reveal 
that we are unaware of this Trojan horse living inside us. When we say things like, I didn't mean that, or that wasn't me, or I don't know where that came from, or I don't know what came over me, we reveal we don't really know the true source of temptation. James says it's from within. It's from your own desires. Now, you might be thinking, what about the devil? Doesn't the devil tempt us too? And in chapter 4, James is going to say, flee the devil. But right now, he wants us to take full responsibility for our sin. James continues this detailed examination of the process of temptation in verse 15. After considering the source of temptation, he tells us about the growth of temptation. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. If you don't flee sinful desires, eventually they will give birth to sinful actions. It's sinful to look at a woman with lust. These thoughts must be killed, but lustful looks lead to adultery. What begins as sinful desire in the heart will only grow to sinful action unless it's killed. This is a vivid metaphor that James presents. He says, sin is the child of sinful desire. And he doesn't stop there because the final goal of temptation is death. Satan may whisper in your ear, you will not surely die. So James shouts louder, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Think about how stark this contrast is with verse 12. In verse 12, we see trials and testing lead to steadfastness, which produces eternal life. Here, desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. Like those soldiers hidden in the Trojan horse, your sinful desires want to kill you. They want to take you out. This is certainly referring to spiritual death. If you remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately died spiritually. But this could also be referring to physical death. Remember their children. Adam's and Eve's son, Cain, killed his brother Abel. David, the chosen king of Israel, the man who wrote over 70 chapters of our Bible, lusted first in his heart, committed adultery second, and then third, he killed someone. He murdered. Sin promises pleasure, and it provides it for a moment. But in the end, it always leads to the same thing, death. This is why Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. We must urgently and quickly repent and mortify our sin every single day. Thomas Watson said, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. Isn't this why Jesus commanded churches to practice, practice church discipline in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
first just the two of you. But if he doesn't listen, bring one or two more. If he still doesn't listen, tell it to the church. And if he still refuses to listen to the whole church telling him that he needs to repent of his sin, you need to treat him like he's not a Christian. Jesus means for the local church to help you in your fight against sin. Because sin loves to do its destruction in secret. Church discipline exposes it with a compassionate warning. Sister, flee from this sin. The purpose isn't to punish people or to humiliate people. It's to save them. Like someone heading towards the edge of a cliff, church discipline is the last resort of bringing them to repentance before they fall to their death. Why then, I wonder, do so many churches not practice church discipline? It's worth asking the next church you're a part of, before you become a member, do you guys obey Jesus' command to practice church discipline? If the answer is no, they might not really believe that sin truly leads to death. Friends, there's a great day of accounting that awaits us. One day soon, before you expect it, you will stand face to face with God, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God's never sinned, and He's never tempted you to sin, but you've sinned because it's your very nature to do so. It overflows from your sinful heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. And each of us has this problem. We've all loved the things God's told us to hate. We've hated the things God's told us to love. We're horrified when we watch the news at the evil out there, but James is telling us, The real enemy is within you. And when it comes down to it, we often don't even think we're that bad at all. Surely we can think of a few people better than us, but we can think of hundreds who are worse. But when we compare ourselves to God, where do we stand? You and I are capable of the most unimaginable, grotesque, and evil sin. This seed already lies within us. Don't you see your problem is bigger than your behavior? You need a new heart. You need heart surgery, a new heart, and new affections. And this is exactly what God's promised to His people in the Old Testament. He said, I promise you a new heart a new spirit. He's promised to remove our stubborn heart of rebellion and to give us a soft one of obedience. He's promised to put the Holy Spirit within us so that we can finally obey. And this heart surgery was made possible because of your perfect donor, Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. And he faced real temptations, 
But these temptations were not a result of sinful desires inside of him because Jesus Christ possessed the very impeccability of God. He was unable to be tempted because he was God himself, holy and blameless, above reproach in every way, unable to sin. And on the cross, he died in your place. He took God's wrath for your sin and he conquered death's sting. He crushed the head of the serpent. He rose from the grave victorious. And he's the one on that last day who will give us the crown of life at the end of our race. And when he ascended to heaven, Jesus did not leave us alone. He sent us the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you're not a Christian, don't be fooled by Satan's lies. You need heart surgery. Your sin leads to death. You're a slave to sin. But you can become a son of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The crown of life can be yours by believing in Jesus Christ and turning from your sin. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, our appalling and indwelling sin should drive us deep into the grace of God. What boast do any of us have except Jesus Christ? Our sin is no match for him. So, my friend, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in God through Christ Jesus. And think about the doctrine of God when you're facing temptation. The doctrine of God helps us in our fight against sin. If you think sin is beautiful, what you need isn't just to stop. You need to consider God more beautiful than sin. Remember the story of Joseph? His master's wife caught him by the garment and said, lie with me. And he fled in a moment. Temptation literally grabbed him by his shirt. It wasn't in that moment that he decided he wasn't going to sleep with her. That decision was made long before then as Joseph trusted in his God and determined not to sin against him. And our fellow church members also help us in our fight against sin. So let me ask you, does another church member know of the areas where you're prone to temptation? Does another member of the church know areas where you're weak? Does another member of the church know the patterns of sin in your life? The areas that you go back to again and again. Does somebody know what's going on beneath the surface of your life? Friends, if the answer is no, you might be in grave danger. Sheep are meant to be together in a flock. But if you're off on your own or you're harboring secret sin, you're going to fall prey to the temptations of Satan and to your own deceitful desires. So friends, pray. 
Pray that our church would be one in which secret sin would have no hiding place. And pray, pray that we would be open and honest with one another about our sin. Your temptation, James said, does not come from God. It comes from within. So we need to think about God's impeccable perfection in temptation. The last thing we need to think about is God's never-changing goodness in giving. God's never-changing goodness in giving. God's not the source of your temptation, but He is the source of every good gift that you have. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James bridges verses 13 through 15 to verses 17 through 18 with this one little imperative in verse 16. Don't be deceived. He doesn't want his fellow Christians, the ones he loves, to be deceived. Deception happens when you believe things are different than how they truly are. So you might think that God's sending you temptations, but the reality is He only gives you good gifts. And here we see God's goodness in giving. God doesn't give good gifts most of the time, and every once in a while there's a a flop. If we look back to verse 5, we remember God is single-minded in His giving. He exclusively gives good and perfect gifts. His giving is an overflow of His goodness. Every gift is from God. Food and fun, rest and recreation, laughter and love, friends and family, marriage and even movies, singleness and science, All of these are gifts from above. And everyone on the planet experiences God's goodness. The sun rises on the evil and on the good. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. These all come from our Heavenly Father above. And verse 17 also tells us that God's goodness is never changing. The gifts Come down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This little title, the Father of lights, is only used in James in the entire Bible. But we think back to Genesis 1 and we remember, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God fathered the lights. He created them. And here we have another example from James of how nature should teach us about God and the world we live in. Because earlier, if you remember in verses 10 and 11, James told us that wildflowers that fade away should teach us about the transience of life and material possessions. Here, he tells us about how God's creation of light should remind us that every good gift he's given is from him. Here's some sermon application. Walk outside 
and see the light from the sun and think about how God made it and how God only gives good gifts. It's a never-changing goodness. There's no variation or shadow due to change. God's goodness is immutable. It's not subject to change. God needs no improvement. He has no potential. There is no change in God ever, for better or for worse, because He's perfect. So while you're outside looking at the sun, stand there long enough, you might sweat a little bit, but stand there long enough to watch the sun shift in the sky and see how the shadows change on the ground and think about how God never changes. We change though. Honest people can become liars. Not just people who tell lies, but they can learn through habitual lying to actually become liars. Faithful spouses, too, can become adulterers. Not just cheat one time, but through repeated action, become adulterers. In fact, every single one of us changes. Therefore, we must not place our faith in spouses or parents or children, or friends, or even in pastors ultimately, because every one of these will let you down. Some may even betray you, but there is one you can count on to be the same yesterday and today and forever. It's Jesus Christ. This is God's never-changing goodness. It's broadly seen in every gift we have. But in verse 18, God's never-changing goodness is specifically seen in a single gift. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. This verse itself is packed with never-changing goodness. It was by God's sovereign choice that He birthed us by the gospel so that we might be a new creation. Just as God birthed the lights, He brought us forth. He birthed us. The Apostle John calls this being born again. Your new birth was God's choice. Now we know this to be true on an earthly level. Our children don't decide to be born. Parents decide that. My daughter had no say in if she was born. We decided that. And we even know behind that, that actually it's God's decision. Birth is from Him. If you're a child of God's, it was His choice. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. And James tells us how God did this. He did it by the word of truth. Every time this phrase is used in the New Testament, it refers to the gospel. So in Genesis 1, God said, Let there be light, and it happened. And by hearing the gospel, God said to us, Be born again. And it happened. James ends this verse with the reason why. Why did God do this? What's his purpose? 
the purpose of God, sovereignly gifting us salvation, is that we would be the beginning of a new creation that will eventually cover the entire earth. God's making all things new. Sin births death. God births new creation. Christian, the greatest gift you have is not your family. It's not your friends. It's not even the food on your table. It's the gift of being born by God. It's the gift of having God as your father. So is this the God that you think about? We need God's thoughts about God in trials and temptation. He's the God who's promised blessing to his people in trials. He's the God who's impeccably perfect in temptation. He's the God who's marked by never changing goodness in giving. Our homes deteriorate. Our possessions are stolen, clothes wear out. God's promises never do. So remain steadfast in trials, loving God more than life itself, and you will receive the crown of life. And we face temptations every day. You will until you die, but they're never from God. Recognize the source of your temptations and kill your sin. Don't say God tempts you. Your bank account will dwindle. Governments come and go, or even our health fluctuates. But God never stops giving good gifts, so don't be deceived by your circumstances. God is making all things new, and He's starting with us. Let's pray. God, we come to you thankful. We're thankful not for your gifts that you've given us, but today we're thankful for you. So we pray, would you help us to look to you in trials and temptations for endurance? God, we need your help. We pray that you give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.